Welcome back, everyone. We have arrived at album number 16 on the new 2020 Rolling Stone list of the greatest albums of all time. This episode is London Calling, the iconic album by The Clash. Yeah, this is one we've already reviewed uh, when we started the 2012 list. This was way back at number eight, and now it's doubled and has moved down to number 16. Uh, Ben, when you and I were younger, we were kind of into, you know, maybe pop punk, some punk. Uh, But this wasn't an album that I think either of us were in in our youth. I I didn't even listen to it in its entirety until we did this project. I think you had. I think someone encouraged. Mm -hmm. I think our guest at the time for that review, Dustin, encouraged you to get into it. Is that correct? Um, it's been a while since I've listened to this review, but I think the story I told was that, uh, this was an album that I found when I moved into an apartment, uh, after college, it didn't have a jewel case, but it just had the CD. And so it rode around in my car for a while. (laughs) Um, and I kind of got into it, uh, even sort of after I'd say, you know, well beyond, this was probably a few years after I'd kind of moved on from our sort of, um, high school Christian punk days, but it was sort of like a, an educational experience for sure to discover this, this nugget, uh, after the fact, uh, after I probably would have appreciated even more, but kind of to, to learn about it a little later in life. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one and an album that I'm still not quite sure, uh, what place it holds for me. It, mm it has a lot of nostalgic vibes because it sounds like the music of our high school years. Um, it's, it's got a, a sort of quality that I still love and the sort of what punk is, I, th- I think is still really wonderful. Um, in the way that it pushes the album is far more than just punk music as well. It's got a whole lot more musicality to it than a lot of punk music. Um, but I, it's not an album that I often reach for. Mm. Uh, I think it's it's similar. I, I think it finds a similar space in my mind to uh, Nirvana's Nevermind, like something that I really appreciate when I ever put it on, but almost never put it on. <laughs> and uh, and so you know those those ones that kind of just float ambiguously out there. Um, you know this move too from. Um, it was originally number eight yeah. on, you know, in the top 10 of the 2012 list. And, and really the original, the 2003 list had that, that same spot. Now here in uh, the number 16 slot, uh, you know, I don't feel myself feeling all that upset about a drop like that. Um, you know, still one of the 20 greatest albums of all time, I guess. And, uh, and so there's something to be said for that, but it makes me wonder, like, if it was in the 30s or 40s, would I feel aghast or would I also sort of be like, eh, that's fair. <laughs> um, and if I feel that sort of ambivalence, uh, you know, I wonder what that says about this album for me. Hmm. I, I feel very similar. I'm not, uh, not upset that it's yeah. moved down. Um, if it was uh-huh. even a little further, I don't think I'd be that upset. It's definitely one of the most... Uh, significant albums, uh, especially uh, coming out like at the, the post-punk era, coming into um, the music of the 80s, especially rock and alt music. Very significant. Uh, it, it is a good album. It, it plays very well. I enjoyed listening to it. I also haven't put it back on. I don't know, maybe not even once since we did it so long ago. Uh, again, not because I didn't like it. It's just not calling to me. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's not. Uh, Ooh. It's not Stovall. Well, well played. Stovall yeah. calling. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I don't know. It's it's one of those ones. It's I don't know. Yeah, I I've, I guess I'm with you. I'm just still struggling. What exactly does it mean to me? Because it's again, I it's feel like it's something I should have liked when I was younger, but just never never listened. Just no one ever pointed me to it. So yeah, I think it would have been very accessible. Mm-hmm. For sure. 
And uh, it's not quite as abrasive as the Sex Pistols, where I think right. our high school selves would have like blushed and turned it off. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I would I would have um, felt uh, like I had to hide hide it. Yeah, right, right, right. My parents, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, it's still edgy though, and still, yeah, it's it's a great album for sure. Um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to re-listening to our review with our friend Dustin. Uh, yeah, just to remind myself of the passion that I think I had when we talked about this, you know, almost two years ago now. Before we get to that, uh, what have we got coming up next time? This hasn't happened all that much in the uh, this new kickoff of the 2020 list, but we've got a brand new review. Um, we have. One of the most uh, modern albums that we've ever talked about here on the Sound Logic podcast, uh, Kanye West's uh, "My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy" album, which came out in 2010, mm. um, is the next one that we are going to tackle. Um, we have a special guest who will be joining us for that one, and it'll be fun to tackle this uh, more modern and current album to assess its greatness and how it stands up with some of these other more classic albums. Absolutely. That's coming up next time. And we hope you'll stick around for our review of London Calling with our friend Dustin Wood. That's coming up right after this. Former guest Colin. Hey guys, it's Dustin. Uh, thanks again for asking me to comment on The Clash London Calling. I reread the list from 1 to 20 to get a quick snapshot of what the changes were to see which albums had shifted in terms of their placement. I think it's super fascinating how much change there has been. I see the clash moving from eighth to 16th place. And I think um, a part of me wants to argue that, you know, it deserves to sit at the, at its original standing that it really should have, shouldn't be bumped down that looking at Nirvana sitting ahead of it, you know, there is no Nirvana without the clash, but at the same time, I don't think, you know, a list is a definitive, authoritative thing. It has to be a living, breathing, evolving thing. And I think this this shift adequately captures changing attitudes towards the album and towards its place in history. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone. And today on the Sound Logic Podcast, we're discussing album number eight on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. This album is London Calling by The Clash. We actually have a special guest with us today. We are really excited to have our friend Dustin Wood. Dustin was a fellow uh, corn picker at Rouge River Farms, and we spent many hours wandering the rows and rows of sweet corn uh, while we picked uh, listening to the radio and talking about our favorite music. Uh, Dustin also is um, a musician himself. He was the bass player in the best band you've never heard of. That's uh, Grand PM. A Canadian, uh, I don't know, would you say pop punk kind of described your sound? Although I guess it was it was broader than that even. I think uh, I think I would describe it as, I think at the end we were synth pop. Pop punk was probably a bit before that, but synth pop was kind of our landing place. And when you said he was part of the best band you'd never heard of, I was sure you were referring to him to say. <laughs> well, Danforth of the string is probably the one that the fewest people have actually uh, ever oh, heard point. of. But. I think Unsaid might be Unsaid might be the worst band you've never heard of. I'll be honest. <laughs> oh come on now! <laughs> no way. Oh uh, yeah. Um, so, and I've got an I've got an album downstairs, and I think that Ben and I are both in the liner notes. So yes, you are. Both, <laughs> I, I we have to pull the double check, but I'm pretty sure you guys are both in there. I've got a signed copy. I'm sure. It's, it's worth exactly what it should be worth at this point. <laughs> memories <laughs> <laughs> well I, i'm really excited to tackle this album uh london calling by the clash we, before we got started here tonight mike and i were talking about you know this this journey that we all went on at one point of listening to kind of christian punk music and, and christian ska uh we realized sort of that our journey was probably a flawed one and that we were we were consuming that music as if it was the new thing 
forgetting that there was this whole wave of music that came before the you know the punk era, post-punk, which The Clash come out of, and create this really incredible sounding album. Um, it, it wasn't until much later in life that I discovered London Calling, and I'm curious for, for either of you, um, where did you end up first discovering this album? Is it is it still fairly new to you? Has this been something that you've listened to your whole life? Um, where does it fit into your musical journey? This album was very new to me. I hadn't heard the album in its entirety. It was familiar, I think, only the title track. And when I listened to, similar to you, Ben, listened to punk rock and ska in the mid-90s, I was really immersed in, in what was new and wasn't really introduced or even interest, interested, embarrassed to say, uh, in what was old and what came before it, the forerunners of that music. Uh, I heard some names, but no one ever really sat me down and said, you really need to listen to this. This is where it came from. So unfortunately, no, I hadn't heard it before. And uh, I wish I had, because I think I would have absolutely loved this album uh, as a teen in high school. And there's a lot of things on here that I really enjoy and I know that my younger self would have really enjoyed too so no it's very new to me for me um, uh, yeah this is one of my favorite all time albums for sure it's it it's top five I would say um, I'm super familiar with it I, I actually I was in going back to do this I realized I hadn't actually listened to the album in a long time although I would say that it does appear so frequently in movies that I really don't know if I stopped listening to it over the last 10 years. Like it, it just kind of comes up over time in different movies. Anytime there's a punk character or, you know, a, a 1980s London punk scene, they usually play one of the songs from the album. And <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the songs are recognizable, even though they're not London calling or train in vain. Like they're still fairly well known as the clash just by the sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, for me, the actual discovery I had with it, I was like you guys, exactly what you said. I in grade seven or grade eight, I was into, uh, I was into a lot of skate punk and and pop punk. So, MXPX, SnowFX, Scop, Strung Out, Lagwagon, Slick Shoes, either Christian punk that you know guys like you Ben, I'm sure you probably showed me some, and Jeff Moore, um, and then just guys at school would give me uh, uh, mixed CDs and stuff. Um, but in grade nine, um, my, my, I think it was grade nine or 10, my sociology teacher, his name was Mr. Arthurs at USS. He, uh, he was a big musician himself and he heard that I like punk music and he said, oh, you got to find out about, you know, the early punk bands. So he actually showed it to the class as part of a, it was, it wasn't Ken Burns, but it was a Ken Burns style documentary and, uh, it was about the history of punk in New York and London. And so he, uh, he showed me. He showed us this documentary. That was kind of my first foray. The first time I heard London Calling, I was just blown away. I couldn't believe something that was so old could be so cool. Like I, I just it floored me. And I ended up, uh, and I feel so guilty saying this. I ended up downloading it on LimeWire, the whole album, and uh, and that's that's what was my that's where I got into it. It sounded a whole lot cooler if you said Napster, but. LimeWire, I don't know. Yeah, that's true, actually. I made the, what was the other one? Kazaa. I think it might have been Kazaa. Who knows? Wow. Kazaa. Oh, yeah. It's putting a date stamp on it for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think so. That's funny. Uh, why don't you give us some album details, Mike? Uh, yeah, this album was released in December of 1979, and this was the band's third studio album. All the tracks were written by Joe Strummer and Mick Jones except for a couple that were uh, that had some other credits. Uh, this charted in the UK to number nine, and in the US, the album charted at number 27. And it's been certified platinum in both the US and the UK. This is the second double album on the 500 list, uh, and we just discussed the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin, we always like to talk about the uh, the album artwork. Before we do that, uh, anything on those first kind of details, generic details of the album? That any comments? There? Uh, the only the only thing I would say that's notable is um, one of the what I think is one of the best songs is the Guns of Brixton, uh, written and sang by Paul Simonon. So it's uh, it's pretty. It's I mean three songwriters producing and it was a relatively well-known song so I, I think it's pretty significant that you know the bass player wrote that song so maybe that's notable 
maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one listening through this a few times that's one that really jumped out to me every time yeah. i listened to it i'd kind of be you know just working on something else on the computer and kind of go oh yeah there's that song yeah. again that's really uh, <laughs> that kind of that kind of just hit me pretty hard so that's uh yeah it's interesting that that was written by someone else yeah. in the band that's great it's a, a it's a sign of the genre i guess that a double album with 19 tracks yeah. can clock in at just 65 minutes. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's punk, right? I mean, it, it really could be compressed to a single disc. Just the album cover, and we always like to discuss the artwork. So we've got uh, uh, this picture of you know a concert, and uh, one of the band members is mid swing of smashing his guitar to the stage. Does anybody know which band member this is? I sure do. This is. Uh... It's Paul Simon on the bass player. Um, he's at the, I think it's the Palladium in New York City. The story was that the security wouldn't let the crowd uh, pogo or mosh or whatever they called it back then. And he was pissed off. And so he just swung the bass and smashed it. Um, what I thought was really cool, just in, like I said, in doing some research on this, um, the photographer that took the picture, her name's Penny Smith did not want them to use the picture because she thought it was too blurry. And oh, wow. uh, it, it in 2002, it ended up oh, voted uh, the best rock and roll photograph of all time by Q Magazine. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, the comment was, it captures the ultimate rock and roll moment, a total loss of control, which I think is pretty, I, I don't know if you can get more rock and roll than smashing your bass to smithereens so i think it's great it does seem a little out of character for the uh, strong steady bass player to be the one smashing though right <laughs> usually it's the drama queen lead singer or uh, or lead guitarist who who goes to town on their instrument but bass player is supposed to be the rock I mean, yeah he's supposed to be the tonal center but he was he was uh, apparently he had a temper so i i guess i don't know it's more punk rock right it's only punk rock if you break your instrument <laughs> i guess that's true there's this other really interesting um, dynamic with this album here. They they have the same sort of pink green lettering that Alvis has on his debut studio album. Um, almost a very similar font too. That's also a black and white image. Elvis isn't smashing his guitar, but you know it's it it almost like is taking something that I'm sure at the time was still considered to be kind of like classic perfection and making it punk. Um, which you know the genre does so frequently, whether it's borrowing uh, from advertising and then making it offensive, or you're taking something that was so you know rock and roll uh, royalty and saying you know kind of giving a finger to it. Um, it's pretty. It's a pretty cool tie-in. I agree. the 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 punk rock genre is defined by subversion. I would say, like, it really is all about subverting authority, subverting the norms, and this is the classic subversion. You know, and and there's a bunch of other great yeah. examples of it. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but uh, the Replacements, a, a band from the late '80s, um, had an album called Let It Be, which was not mm -hmm. the Beatles album, but you know, it, it was definitely a yeah. real sort of you know nudge or nod or kick at the beatles and that sort of high polished pop sound and you know they're they're basically punk rock version of it i think it's i think it's really cool right yeah there's there's ways to get even more offensive i guess uh, god save the queen the 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 famous sex pistols uh uh album has the you know the queen with her eyes blacked yeah. out um uh, yeah, so the you know you can get edgier than this certainly, but but this does sort of feel uh, appropriate for the genre. And I think I'm grateful that we're listening to an album that kind of built on punk. This is not just like two chord, minute and a half songs that all sound exactly the same. This is a band uh, taking that genre and making it their own, incorporating other musical influences, incorporating. Uh, lots of different layering and effects and uh what we have here is still punk but it's so much more than that and i think that's what makes this album great for well, me that's that's i agree like that that is that's this is a watershed this album's a watershed moment for punk rock or for punk music it is basically the beginning of the yeah. post-punk era and what what is so right. significant is that that they 
they were not afraid to really stretch the boundaries of what could be included in punk rock. I, mm-hmm. I think in some ways, punk to this point was essentially just glorified performance art. It really valued the notion of offensiveness and the notion of just pushing sort of the boundaries of what was acceptable over the actual quality of the art that was produced. Because I don't, I don't know who yeah. would ever just sit down and put on um, the Sex Pistols album to casually listen to it. I'm sure there are people that are or people that do, right. but it, it's certainly, right. this was an album meant to be digested and as a musical work of art, as opposed to just a matter of offending you or trying to push the boundaries of what you were willing to accept. Exactly. This is a double album. It's got 19 tracks. Yeah. So we're not going to list them all right here. Uh, you can look up the track listing to get every single one, but I thought we could take a moment and talk about a few of our favorites or some that really stand out. Uh, Dustin, if you feel that, uh, I know you're a big fan that you want to talk about all 19. You can just go right ahead, bud. But uh, <laughs> I definitely don't. There's there's definitely some some softer tracks that you know. I mean, soft in terms of they just don't land. They're just not as it's it's definitely got some filler still. It's not like every every song is great. <laughs> uh, one that we has already come up. We talked about is the Guns of Brixton, and this was one that. Uh, I wouldn't say it was necessarily one of my favorite or the easiest to listen to, but one that really jumped out and kind of, kind of smacked me in the face a bit in terms of just sounding very different and being very poignant, not only in the lyrics, but also in the musical uh, composition of it. Um, so that's one that, that really, even when I look at the list stands out for me. We just talked about the Rolling Stones exile on main street, which is a double album with a whole ton of songs. And it would make sense to like, cut at least half of them to make it a really a, a bet much better more solid single album with this album i was surprised i was trying i had that in my head as i was listening to it and i i don't think that, uh, that i would be willing to cut half of these tracks to make it a single album um typically yeah. i think you know it's a very rare project that justifies two albums worth of music uh, but this is pr- this is one that i might be willing to go to bat for um there's really only maybe two or three songs where i i would be fine without them but it you know i i think i think it took until track 12 or 13 before i was like eh. and that's i don't know that's saying something i think that they can have this much quality um on a double album i think i think there's a lot of different genres and yeah and uh, styles that were being incorporated, which I I think that that makes for something as well in terms of how you approach the album as a listener. So, you know, you might be the kind of person that really latches onto the reggaeton stuff or you might get more into the the kind of early dub sounds of some of the other stuff. It, it depends. For me, I still really connect with a lot of the more traditional punk kind of style songs. Um, and there's a bunch of them though, that, that sort of veer off into other territory that I'm really into as well. But I, I, I think, you know, without being too cheesy, it there really is something for maybe not everyone, but for a lot of different people. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's, that's again, why it's kind of a watershed moment in, in punk rock history where there was, there were sort of smashing all of these genres into this album, giving it a bunch of life for different people you know you could you could really have four yeah four someone could have four completely different favorite songs than somebody else it has uh three singles i think london calling clamp down and train in vain were all released as uh singles um but but i think maybe the challenge in an album like this is figuring out which songs are going to be the singles because you're right just because you listen to one track does not mean you have a sense of what the whole album is and i'm thinking in particular about track two it starts with the like uh, kind of surf guitar uh, plucking there doing that that line it's not at all distorted it could be an Elvis yes. intro I think uh, until you get to his voice coming in um, so yeah it, it really does jump around quite a lot and there are songs with almost a you know Spanish Bombs almost has like a sway to it um, yeah and yeah it, it's a really interesting mix of, of sounds still drawing on that influence the punk punk scene that they were coming out of i was impressed by how diverse this album is uh i was just blown away you know and and that was one thing although i think we could maybe pare it down to one album uh 
the diversity and it makes it so interesting and as you get deeper into it they keep throwing different things at you that make you want to listen to more it's not just the same track or the same type of track every time and one there's a lot of ska sounds a lot of horn sounds uh, that i hadn't really expected it to have that much ska influence which i really enjoyed because i really loved that type of music growing up and then another song that jumped out to me was lost in the super supermarket and i was hearing this kind of new wave uh sound that you hear like in the mid to late 80s by all these uh alternative you know different pop bands coming out uh, you've got this sound that's really ahead of its time and you hear that a bit throughout the album too so uh, there's so many things happen happening as you said Dustin in different genres that make it super interesting and diverse yeah. can we talk about that track for just a, another couple minutes um, did Graham PM ever cover Lost in the Supermarket? No, I uh, I saw in your in your notes actually. No, we never covered Lost in the Supermarket. This song in particular reminds me so much of your bass playing and and Jeff's drumming. I know something about the the pace of the drums and the wandering bass line makes me think almost immediately of God Save the Scene from Grand PM. I just learned today that Grand PM is on Spotify, so you all need to go and check it out. Yes, we are on Spotify. I still get a residual or a royalty check once a quarter for about 25 cents, I think, from SoCan. So you're just fattening my wallet. There's this like wandering bass line in both songs, splashy drums. Uh, even the singing, I think, is a bit melancholy in the way that, I don't know, you can, you can definitely hear influences even if it wasn't intentional. It's uh, to me, Lost in the Supermarket is a huge standout from the rest of the album. Even though there's a lot of variety, it sounds very different yeah. than the rest of the album somehow. Like it has a, I think it might be the guitar tone, whatever it is. It's it is distinct from everything else, and for whatever little tie-in this is, uh, the Clash was. I I am very evangelical about the music that I like, and um, this uh, the Clash was one of those bands that I shared with Paul Mayer because he. He had a really limited scope of music he listened to growing up and, you know, was always looking to absorb new influences. And so I said, you got to check out The Clash. And <laughs> he just loved it, just fell in love with it. So, yeah, there's almost almost 100% certainty that, that that somehow maybe just warmed its way into his brain and, and came out to one of our songs, I'm sure of it. And, and for what it's worth, Paul Stimenon as a bass player was, was one of my personal bass heroes I guess I, if you want to I tried to emulate him a lot he had the low slung bass he had um, he had the super melodic bass lines um, very funky at times very good rhythmic player as well but very melodic bass lines he didn't just stick to the roots and no. and you know he was he was he was there driving the band and, and it was it was super cool um, and he was a, he was a lanky skinny guy I was a lanky skinny guy he played a P bass I played a P bass you know that like really chimey P bass tone was a, a bass tone I tried to get on all of our records as well. So yeah, there's there's definitely you if if you could hear that in what I'm playing, then that's a huge compliment. I appreciate it because it, it definitely yeah. was something I was trying to achieve. Well, the other track that the bass playing really shines for me is Rudy Can't Fail because he's really dancing around in that song, and it's not just like punk music where you know so many of the bands the bass player just plays the same uh note as the power chord that the guitarist is playing yeah there's like a the two instruments are playing with each other they're they're bouncing off of each other um all through the album but especially on rudy can't fail uh it's a really really interesting dynamic and much more musical than i think i would have assumed an album from this era in this genre would be I agree. Do you mind if I talk about London Calling, the first song? Because it's, it's, sure. it, it is, uh, it, it truly, the first time I heard it, the, the power that I felt that it had, it just blew my ears off. Like I couldn't, like I say, like, I couldn't believe something that was, because I would have heard it in 1999. So this would have been nearly 20 years after it had been released. And I mean, something for 20 years old, it just, it has a certain, I, I know everybody's probably heard it before too, so it's hard to hear that one for the first time, but I really tried to approach the album and listen to it the first time. And it still has so much snarl to it. It's so strong mm. as a lead track on an album. You can you can imagine if you'd never heard this before, I can, I can still kind of imagine what it would sound like to hear probably 
a sea change in music. You know, there's there's certain things happening. And I and I, I did a bit of reading on this song in particular, um, and I, I didn't know this, but um, Joe Strummer lived on the bank of the of the Thames River. And at the time there was some issue relating to flooding. And there was this deep held paranoia about the flood coming in and just basically washing out lower London. And that was what the song's about. It's just about um, about his paranoia about not you know, not surviving a big flood. And <laughs> and it but it, it also functions as this amazing call to arms on anything, on you know, the oppression of the, the, this wave of conservatism that was rising up in, in Britain at the time, you know, like the line come out of the cupboards, boys and girls, like it's, it's really like just take action, you know, and it, it, the song feels, yeah. it, it justifies that call. It really feels so forceful, you know, and it, it's, it's cool. I mean, it, and it's still now, it's been another, what, 30 years, 40 years now, 40 years since the album came out, and it's still very strong. It's not, it, although it definitely has dated elements i think it's still very 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 relevant first of all but also just very strong from a sonic perspective he crows in it like this is like yeah. uh i don't yeah. know primal <laughs> primal kind of screaming uh, in this in the song that it doesn't sound cheesy or thrown in or like a, uh <laughs> the other pop culture crowing i think of is uh in the Peter Pan movie that came out when we were kids called Hook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rufio Crows, you know, as he's riding around on a skateboard and stuff. Uh, that feels very forced. This sounds like real and raw, and uh, I guess that's good punk when it feels legitimate and not just like your sellout. I've never thought for one moment that that crowing didn't belong there. Yes, I hear yeah. it, and it just goes right by because it's just a part of the song. I've always heard it, and it's, it totally fits. Yeah, and the other the other thing that's cool about this song is the guitar solo is actually was is is backwards, so it was recorded and then inserted in the song in reverse. And you know, punk music at the time, again, not known for deeply musical experimentation. It's it's a it's a really asymmetrical way to, to record something, and and you know, punk bands in the genre were not doing stuff like that. It was more reductive about. Uh, forcefully communicating a message rather than trying to be nuanced and layered, which I think this mm. album very much is. There's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot of a lot of unspoken messages or unspoken elements. And this this is one of those things. Again, you know, you might not might not know it just to hear it, but then when I, every time I hear it since then, since I learned that fact, you you can hear it. It's such a unique solo. You can't even imagine recreating it if you're going to try and play it. Do you know much about how they played this album live? Uh, we've talked already about a couple of albums, uh, Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper's come to mind, as things that were really created in the studio but never meant to be performed. Um, this is layered, but it sounds like it's still possible to perform. Is that true? I, I would say so. I, I, you know, I unfortunately, and when I learned about how much I love this band the very first time it was it's like finding out that the girl you have a crush on um you know <laughs> moved away a year ago you know what I mean like it, it's the band was long yeah exactly the band, <laughs> band was long broken up but I've watched a ton of footage and I I think they they did a pretty admirable job of recreating it one day they the the, the takes on the album are the sorry the songs on the album are usually one or two takes so it's not it's not a highly polished wow. uh, album, aside from the fact that a ton of work went into the songwriting. So you know the execution of the songs was more about um, more about executing them in the moment, and and that that's that I think is replicatable live. I think they definitely were able to do that, and they did have um, a touring keyboardist or organist or whatever they had. They did have a guy that did some of that. So I think a lot of that stuff was able to be was they were able to put into their live show. And I, I definitely have seen, you know, backing sections with horns and stuff. So they did, I, I think so. I think oh, they were yeah, able to yeah, recreate yeah. it. Death or Glory is one of my favorites, which I think um, I think was kind of a, you know, it captured that spirit of nihilism in terms of rock music. Uh, Death or Glory is just another story. I think I think it's such a great um you know, throwaway where it's just like it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, you can, you could, you could die or you could become the hero, but they're kind of equal. You know, which is a, 
a really, um, really prescient sentiment at the time this is coming out. It was, you felt stifled by the system. There's nothing you could do, you know, you were, you were, it didn't matter whether you got there or not. It was just <clears throat> all the same. Two tracks that I think I could do it without are Wrong and Boyo and Revolution Rock. Both are covers. I learned when I was looking up, uh, you know, who the credits are for this album. Uh, and it's interesting to me to include two covers. I know that was fairly typical in punk music, but to include two covers in a double, double album, uh, maybe they were just looking for filler, or maybe these were two songs that they toured frequently, but uh, those are two that I feel somewhat indifferently about, and sure enough, it wasn't even the band who had written them. In, in recording this album, I do know that they had been struggling with pretty significant writer's block, and... And in, uh, in order to overcome that, they, they actually went into sort of a closed rehearsal mentality where they didn't allow outsiders in. Mm. They, they sort of rebuilt their confidence by playing covers. And so that that likely is where that stems from, whether it's, you know, something they picked up on the road. Interesting. But, yeah, that's but helpful. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, I made a note here. It's, it's interesting when you, when you go, especially when you're a band that's touring at this level, I, we never... When I was in a band, we never toured at this kind of level where you're touring around the world playing the same songs every single night for months on end. But I do know that in playing an album or trying to play live, it's an exercise in mastering the execution of songs. It's not an exercise in creativity. The creativity is complete, so you're you're trying yeah. to master and make it repeatable and make it um, make it so that you can you can commit to the highest performance you can. And when when, it come, when you come off the road yeah. or when you come to back to write, you start writing the same song over and over again. Like you, you're you're trying to make a new song, but it just sounds like the other songs you played because you've just drilled them so far into your brain. Yeah, it's it's almost like how do you write a new song, you know? And I think I think that's yeah, what happened here, and I think that's I think that's where you see this little bit of um, whatever it is. Maybe it's maybe it's a homage. Maybe it's just something to sort of acknowledge what got them out of the funk i don't know but i, I know what you mean it's it is they're not the strongest songs on the album but i think they still fit within the you know the style and the scope of the album well and perhaps that's why you get so many genre influences coming out here in an effort to um try and kickstart that creativity uh perhaps they're just being experimental here and fortunately for us i think a lot of it works um train in vain sounds almost 80s in in sound but it's just it just seems like a timeless song to me and it's just kind of a close out the end of a double album track thrown on the end um, it was it was actually if you guys saw in i don't know if you saw on the wikipedia but it on the original release of the album they just added it last minute it wasn't even on the liner notes that it was going to be on the album <laughs> um, which is, I think, I think I'd have to check. I think there was some sort of plan to do it as a giveaway or to include it on a, a 45 or something with the album, and it didn't work. But it's easily one of the most recognizable Clash songs, and it just kind of got tacked on there at the end. Yeah. Like, ah, we'll throw it on. We recorded it. We might as well put it in there. The only only other thing I would want to throw in there was um, the producer guy Stevens. He was. Uh, he was a nut job. He, um, he he was somewhat called the other Phil Spector, which is not a compliment. Um, he was he was a he was a maniac. He had addiction issues, alcoholic, drugs, and he died in '81, two years after the album came out. So he was a troubled guy. And there's if you go on YouTube, you can find footage of him in the live room while they're recording this album, swinging a ladder around, trying to hit the guys as they're playing. He was. He felt it brought this sense of urgency to the album. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And you know, <laughs> I, whether you agree or not, I mean, it, it, like it does have that knife edge kind of sound to it and the way it's played. But yeah, it's uh, he was a nut job, and he definitely, definitely influenced. They they campaigned to have him be the producer, and CBS was like, "No, this guy's a crazy alcoholic," and they're like, "No, we need him." And, uh, you know, you can, I don't know how much you can measure his influence, but I mean, this album was their watershed moment and I don't think they really achieved the same thing after that. So you had to do something. Uh, what about personal memories? Uh, anything come to mind? I, 
I, uh, I didn't share this earlier, but um, when I moved into my first apartment after college, uh, the previous tenants had left this behind. It was in an area that obviously never got cleaned, like the top of the fridge or the top of a cabinet or something. Uh, no jewel case, it was just the disc. And so I didn't really even know what it was, but it traveled around in my car then for a while. Um, so my, my earliest memories are of this like kind of totally uh, accidental finding that was pretty pretty magical to you know get this this jewel of an album in a, something that I'm sure we even thought about tossing. It wasn't even a you know it was left behind from the previous tenant. That's my favorite way to come across music is sort of happenstance or accidentally. I, I love that. It's it feels so the bar is low enough yeah. too. <laughs> It could have probably That's been true. anything, but it was free and found. You're going to at least listen on the top of the fridge, so. <laughs> exactly. Was in a, a grade 13 music class. It's called OAC in Ontario. And um, our big end-of-year project was you had to give a presentation, which basically took up the whole period on something musical. And one of, one of my good friends, uh, Marco, we actually – we're in a little punk band after that. I think we, I think we played a show with one of your bands once, Dustin. Um, and yes, yeah, I do. At the cathedral, that was fun. Uh, I think and we played with Sub, right? Uh, yep, it was with Sub. That was from, that was from really Montreal. Cool. Anyways, that's right. a sidetrack. But um, uh, <laughs> so he decided uh, much of the chagrin of the. Of the music teacher, he decided to do his presentation on punk rock. And I thought I was really excited because I just love the music, but he did a really good job and had us listen to a lot of punk rock music throughout that music period. And the the music teacher was just cringing the whole time, but he played London Calling and explained how this was an example of how punk rock evolved over time, that it didn't necessarily have to sound just that straight up, you know, uh, eighth notes and 16th notes on the guitar and bass that there was a lot of evolution happening. And I re- always remembered that about, it really left a mark on, on the way I think about the clash because they're a band that started kind of in that scene and really evolved and changed their style. And punk rock didn't have to be for me anymore, just in this little box. So that was kind of this little moment where my thinking of it changed. And I always think of, of my friend and think of this band when I think of that. This uh, this album for me was a gateway to pretty much all of my classic rock listening because, um, like I like I mentioned, it was my uh, sociology teacher in high school that showed it to us, and um, at that point, to, for to that point for me, a lot of the classic rock that I heard on Q one hundred seven, a lot of the stuff that I was listening to, that was my dad's music, and I don't think I don't think anybody was at the time was like, Oh, my dad has the best taste in music. You know, he was trying to show me Bowie albums and he was trying to show me talking heads. And it was just, it was so outside of what I was listening to that it, <laughs> it, it didn't appeal to me at all, you know? And this was a band that, that bridged the gap between what he listened to. And they came, there was a similar bit of overlap with in the punk scene with the talking heads as well. And these guys kind of opened me up to the talking heads, which was a, a band for my, dad that was huge like he loved the talking heads and it, it was kind of a, a a door opener for him and i to sort of have some shared you know musical passion i guess because to that point like i say it was like oh dad music you know and this was this was the one thing that kind of broke that barrier and made me really re um re-examine all the stuff that he had listened to and kind of be like oh i can actually see the connection between what i'm listening to and what he liked you know so that was it was kind of transformative for me interesting do you think he'd be a guest host? Uh, Talking Heads come up at number one twenty nine. We, uh, we might need some help with that one. I would love to. That's that's they're another <laughs> one of my favorite bands. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Mike and I were both saying how important it would have been to have this album before we listened to all that uh, mediocre Christian punk <laughs> music in high school. Um, I think this makes it all make so much more sense that, that those artists were really building on something that had come before. We just didn't realize it at the time. And I think you, in listening to this album, you hear how 
influential it is in all kinds of genres too. Uh, I think about uh, an artist that I really love right now, uh, Nate Roos, who's the lead singer of the format and of fun. Um, I think that there's some, there's some clash influence in both of those projects as well as his solo album, uh, just in the musicality, but also the attitude, the, the lyrics pushing back at society and um, oppressive systems and you don't realize that unless you understand what came before and I, I, so I'm yeah, I'm really grateful for albums like this that made a made a change in music industry listen to it uh, again I, I came into it fairly uneducated on where this stands in there so I wasn't really sure what to expect in terms of the evolution of the band and their sound uh, I did not expect uh, as much ska influence and some of those more even modern sounds of kind of I'm hearing hints of what would be new wave uh, in the 80s so it was way more diverse than I expected and and way more complex it wasn't that straight up you know straight up and down punk rock so uh, I guess my expectations were a little low but not in the sense that I thought it would be bad I just thought it would be a little simpler it was a lot more diverse and complex and it was a pleasant surprise of course yeah I I, I kind of thought like I, like I mentioned before from my original listen preconceived notions I, I was I, I was kind of just thinking that the clash was another old band that my dad would listen to right um, on this time around I was kind of thinking I'm pretty much only preconceived notions about this this album in the sense that I it was such an important part of the fabric of my uh, adolescence that it that it's hard to hear it fresh it was really difficult to sort of and I to, to take a step back and hear it for the first time I, I was um I was a super appreciative actually of a bunch of songs on the back half of the album that I I traditionally had skipped over because you know before you before you could make playlists with everything you just skip through songs and I I definitely definitely could hear the first five seconds of a bunch of them but don't know if I really got past that because like you say there's 19 songs on the album and I probably hit my limit in terms of favorites, yeah. maybe seven or something, you know, and then, you know, but there was, there was a bunch in the back in particular four horsemen and I'm not down that I, I really enjoyed this time around and thought, and it, they're just kind of fresh favorites for me to have. Um, but I also thought it was interesting. My, just how my perception of the, the role of punk rock music in, in music history and also in sociological history has kind of evolved at the time this was a really defiant sounding album and it fit in with what for me was a very defiant period in my life, you know, defining who I was. Uh, also just feeling, I don't know if it's a natural thing to, it must be a natural thing at that time in your life to really try and want to buck the order and really feel like you're carving out your own path, you know, and I, I know for me now, um, I'm a, I think as a human, it's natural. I'm a little more jaded. I'm a little more uh, cynical and and I don't approach music or or an album with this mentality that oh this could change my life you know like this could really be this could be the thing that you know really puts me on a new path I don't I don't encounter music the same way anymore you know so it's it's different it's very different to hear it now and and hear a song that yeah. still has a very defiant tone one that I wasn't familiar with um, and at this time I'm almost like oh yeah it's it's a great album and it's a really cool song but I just beyond that it doesn't really spark me the same way which i think is kind of impossible i don't think you can really ever recapture that that youthful um you know defiance that you have when you're 17 years old and convinced you know absolutely everything and <laughs> you know you're gonna change the world it's just a matter of time yeah i think with like a lot of great albums maybe why i was so frustrated with highway 61 revisited is i assumed that I, a great album would have lots of tracks that i knew or could resonate with right away and I think my first time listening to London Calling, I thought, oh, I know these guys. I've heard this song, these songs before. I, I have a sense of who this might be. Um, and so it was almost like, it was almost like, you know, getting a new piece of clothing and trying it on and feeling like it fits perfectly. Um, that wasn't the experience of uh, Highway 61 Revisited. And so, um, you know, this, this was a, a it broke the preconceived notions. I think I saw the Clash London Calling on that, you know, dusty uh, CD and thought, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to know who this is. It's probably songs about life in the UK and 
uh, yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden this world opens up and you're like, oh, I've been here before. Uh, it's a pretty neat feeling when that happens. It doesn't always happen, of course, but yeah. Dustin, you mentioned, is, is the album relevant? Does it sound dated? I think personally, I feel it, it is. And, and we've said this on about many of the albums Ben and I have talked about that, that sometimes it's relevant and it sounds dated at the same time. And that's not a bad thing. I think this album fits into that category that it is relevant. I think a lot of the sounds are still very compelling and sound really good. Uh, although we can place them in a certain era, we can listen to this and go, yeah, this is probably late seventies or early eighties post-punk, but it still sounds really good. And I think this is one that kind of fits into both of it, yeah. both of those categories in a positive way. I think you're right. And, um, and I think it was defining for its time and it has made a big impact uh, beyond its time. Um, unlike uh, some other albums, I don't think it was just being different for the sake of being different. Like, I think there's also a well-crafted album here. It's not, it's not just the attitude of punk without the uh, musicality behind it. And for, for me, that, that makes it a bit more timeless. It is, yeah, it, it's just really well done. I, I think the only, the only reason it might sound dated, sonically, I mean, everything kind of sounds a bit, you can always sound, you can always tell something sonically is a bit dated just in terms of the bass isn't mixed the same way it is now. There's not nearly as much uh, low end on the album. Right. That kind of stuff dates it from a recording perspective. Um, but what I think is is really powerful with this album and maybe it's almost a little disappointing is that the um circumstances that surrounded this album being made that the socioeconomic circumstances that were going on in britain are still fairly similar now you know we've there's been some ups and downs in the meantime but you got a lot of disaffected and economically disadvantaged youth and young people you've got a lot of frustration with the establishment there's a lot of that hasn't changed. And for that reason, it, it still resonates, I think, from a messaging standpoint, that that it's it's um, it's uh, it, it's it's very, very still relevant to our time, I guess, is what I'm getting at. And I, the only reason I was going to say that I think it might sound dated from our songwriting perspective is we've heard these ideas reiterated by so many bands in the meantime, that if you if you hadn't heard this first, you'd be like, I heard this in whatever album that came 10 or 20 years later, because bands are still rewriting these songs many times over because they're very strong, you know? So it, that's, that's the, yeah. that's the only, the only disadvantage an album like this has is that there's been so much yeah. time has passed in the meantime where bands have recreated the, the themes and the ideas behind the songs. Well, and I think it, uh, it's in that reminder, there's also something depressing about the fact that this album could still be written today it still needed to be heard today um, and not, you know, in as much progress as has happened in the last, yeah. uh, what did we say, 40 years. Um, there's still so many things that this can point to in our current context to say, wake up people. I felt that way when I listened to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On too, just a couple of albums ago, that there's this echo that's needed. And uh, I kind of wish... There were more artists like Marvin Gaye, like The Clash, um, you know, speaking out against the injustice that's happening at this particular political moment. Agreed. Well, the uh, way we like to wrap up every one of these episodes is by asking the question, was it sound logic for Rolling Stone to put this album at this point on the list? This is, uh, this is ranked number eight. Uh, only seven albums ranked higher than it. Is that an appropriate spot? Uh, Dustin, why don't you go first? I, I think so. I I think that the list is so Beatles heavy at the top. It's kind of surprising that it managed to rank this highly in some ways, but I, I agree because I, I think if you look down the list, uh, there's so many bands that at least in part owe their careers to this band that I think it's, yep. it's, it's pretty safe to put it at this place and, 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 it, and it, it makes sense. It really is that significant. It is probably the seventh mm. or eighth most significant album to come out. 
you mentioned that it's in your top five or so. Do you have others uh, that you would put above it that you'd care to share? Ooh, see that I, I, my I'll, I'm always cautious to have a top five, but not necessarily rank it. That's the thing, because <laughs> at different times it can sort of be, yeah, um, it can be fluid. There's a, a certain points where this might have been the, the the most important. It might have been the second most important. It's probably closer to five, but five now. But in terms of what I would put above it, that's a tough call. I think I would rank Sergeant Pepper's ahead of it um, because I think that I, I it's it's actually my list lines up pretty close with what's there i would put sergeant peppers and pet sounds up towards the top in that top five as well because of their significance and again probably wouldn't be a clash without sergeant peppers you know so that's that's definitely something i would say that that's up there i don't know what else would be right. in that, that top five but like i say i keep it fluid so that I, I can pull stuff in and out <laughs> thank you again for the introduction to pet sounds uh I- Gave you a shout out on that episode, but I, I do really appreciate it. I I don't remember that specific instance of trying to push music on you, but I remember many times. Snow Patrol is another one that I don't know if you want to be as p- proud of. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just not talk about Snow Patrol because, but at the time, I just felt like it was important for people to hear albums. That was I, like I said, I was a. <laughs> evangelist for whatever I was listening to. And I, at the time I always, I always felt whatever I was listening, listening to at that moment was the most important thing that some people should hear. Well, I think that's coming out as we go through this project. I think, um, with a couple of exceptions so far at the end of each album, I'm like, Oh, that's the best thing ever. I want to put that yeah. at number one. And, uh, and so it's going to be, uh, we, we've been saying that once we get to the top, the end of the top 10, we'll re-rank them ourselves. And it'll be interesting to, to see if it's the albums we've most recently listed to that get bumped to the top or if we are able to sort of step back, zoom out and say, no, I think this one really does deserve to be here. I, I totally agree with you. This is definitely an album that deserves all the accolades it can get. Um, I'm very happy with it being placed right here and it would probably rise a couple of notches in the rankings um, when we re- reshuffle those coming up here in a couple of episodes, but uh, I'll hold off on doing that just yet. Putting it here... I find it very interesting that the first five albums on the list are from the 60s, very specifically 65 to 67. And then the next three albums on the list are in the 70s. So it's almost like they're sort of setting up the hierarchy of the whole thing. Mm. Um, uh, And I don't want to put words into their mouths, so to speak, but, you know, I would agree with both of you that I could push this a little higher just to kind of blend as, as you say, Dustin, and I agree, you look down this list, so many bands that were influenced by this album and this band that wouldn't have existed in the same way if it were not for this band. And as much as this is a really, really good sounding album that I really, really enjoyed listening to, it's also huge in terms of its influence uh, and it is influenced in so many different ways. And one of the reasons is because it's so diverse and has so many different sounds. So I think uh, I would put it, as I've said a few times in the top 10, at least one higher. Uh, And you know, which album I'm referring to maybe even (laughs) at this point, two higher. Um, uh, But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it hits on a lot of different levels. Thanks again, Dustin. Uh, I think you've really added an incredible perspective here and, uh, you know, in a very similar way to this project allowing Mike and I to reconnect. It's been really wonderful to, to reconnect with you just a little bit here this evening as well. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on guys. This, this was great. It, it's really, uh, it's really cool to, like I said, to sort of recapture some of what we used to do. Um, I guess that's Jesus almost 20 years ago and, and just, <laughs> just spend time, you know, hanging out and chatting about music. Cause it's, it's, uh, it, it's kind of a, even just having this discussion and digging into it kind of awaken little spots in my brain that I hadn't really muscles. I hadn't flexed in yeah. a little while. It was pretty cool. Well, scan down the list. If there's another one coming up here that, uh, really gets you fired up again, get in touch and we'll have you back on. Awesome. I'd appreciate it. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Dustin, thanks for, for joining us and, we hope you'll come back and join us another time. For sure. Yeah, Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks very much, guys.
What do we got coming up next, Mike? Yeah, so next time on the Sound Logic podcast, we're going to discuss album number nine on the Rolling Stone magazine's top 500 album list, and that is Blonde on Blonde by Mr. Bob Dylan. We might even have a special guest with us. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that classic episode of ours. Tune in next time for the next album on the new 2020 Rolling Stone list.